Welcome to Tempest Tossed. We're a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School in New York City, and I'm Alex Alenikov. Our guest today is Ayelet Shahar, Professor of Law, Political Science, and Global Affairs at the University of Toronto. She's also a director at the Max Planck Institute in Göttingen, Germany. Ayelet, welcome. Thank you so much. A pleasure to be here. You know, you've written this terrific uh, new book called The Shifting Border, Legal Cartographies of Migration and Mobility. And I really welcome a chance to talk with you about the book today. Uh, the pleasure is all mine. <laughs> So let's start with the title. What do you mean by the shifting border? What's that refer to? Well, the shifting border, when I uh, was researching this book, which was just such a pleasure, I uh, encountered two dominant uh, models that we have in the literature and in our thinking about the border. And I refer to them in the book as the static border. That's the kind of traditional Westphalian uh, fortified on the ground uh, at the frontier border. And another model that we have is what I would refer to as the disappearing border. So post-1989, with the fall of the Berlin Wall, there was a sense of, at the time, optimism, saying borders are just uh, the relics of a bygone era. Uh, they will disappear. They will become close to meaningless. And given that I have started uh, the writing of this book um, in 2015, when I actually uh, moved to Germany, as it happened, exactly at the summer of migration or the refugee crisis, and it was very clear to me that neither the static nor the disappearing uh, border thesis or constructs were capturing the reality on the ground that we were seeing. And I was trying to create a model that would explain to us the kind of borders that we find in the world uh, around us. By the shifting border, what I'm trying to capture is the idea that core migration control and border control functions are no longer uh, attached to a particular physical territorial marker. And the border shifts in many directions. It may move deep into the interior, where we find uh, what in the United States have been referred to as constitutional light or constitutional free zones. In France, these would be called uh, waiting zones. They're different terms that are trying to capture the idea that for some individuals who cross the border, although they're physically within the territory, they don't have the full protections that persons would typically have once they are on the soil of a given country. So the border pushes inside. It also stretches far, far away from the actual territorial border. That's the extraterritorial dimension of the border that I'm trying to capture. And also I explain in the book that in some cases, not only does the border move inside and outside, inward and outward, but it also may appear, disappear, it may uh, be erased. So really these are all very dramatic reinventions of the border and partly given my legal background, I'm interested in how public law, the traditional tools of public law, case law, legislation, regulation, actually help states and governments and law and order agencies create this legal fiction, allow individuals to actually be on the territory but legally not be present, and similarly allow states to exercise their uh, control function in the sense of who may come in and who may not potentially thousands of miles away from the territory. So the idea of the shifting border really is quite different than, than most people would think. They think they come to the territory of a state and that's where they meet the border. You've described the way it moves inside and outside a state. What's given rise to the shifting border? Why have we seen this move away from the physical territory of the state, both inside and outside? I think that states came to the realization 
especially, and, and here my focus is really mostly on liberal democracies and, and rule of law societies, that is societies that have taken upon themselves um, the responsibility, say, to protect uh, refugees and asylum seekers, uh, countries that see themselves as uh, human rights protectors, both domestically and globally. And I think uh, these countries came to the realization that protecting the border or guarding the border or doing the work of determining uh, whom to admit and whom to keep out at the territorial border, as uh, the UK government would put it, is just too late. That is, uh, at that point in time, because of our legal structures, because territorial arrival is so meaningful, that is, you gain so many rights and protections just by virtue of having arrived to the territory, countries have realized that if they want to regulate mobility um, at a distance or in advance of arrival, they can uh, acquire the same control functions, but they are then, in a way, free from the kinds of protections and regulations that individuals would have had the encounter occurred at the territorial border. So I think it's really a response uh, of countries trying to, on the one hand, maintain uh, their constitutional and human rights obligations, while at the same time trying to actually avert these obligations. So what you're saying is that the shifting border really is a, a rights-denying move by states who want to say, yes, we believe in international law, domestic constitutional law, giving migrants rights when they arrive, but if we can push our enforcement out, they don't have rights out there, it'll be less seen, and we won't, we won't be seen as violating their rights, even as we exert more control over who comes into the country. Is that, is that fair? I think it's a fair description, and it, that's probably the critical part of this book, really trying to show how this is done, not just making that statement, but really very carefully detailing the legal techniques which are used to actually uh, permit this kind of hocus-pocus right, saying you are, uh, we are protecting your rights, but we're making sure that we can actually avert or avoid or, or skirt those obligations. But I think I also treat it as an opening, because I think precisely because these countries are not just outright saying, well, we do not respect the rights of irregular migrants or asylum seekers and, and refugees, but they're actually saying uh, we do, but de facto we're trying just to make sure that you will never make it. I think that creates an opening because of this gap. But in my mind, what I'm trying to think is whether we can switch that around and actually follow the shifting border and say, if power is exercised by uh, state authorities or their delegates, uh, the fact that it's not done at the territorial border does not mean that all of a sudden all the kinds of uh, protections uh, that are built into the law, they cannot just disappear. So you describe in the book um, several different strategies for bridging that gap, for having, if you will, rights catch up to the, the shifting border as it's shifted out. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. I'll be happy to. So I really deployed two um, or, or developed two different um, strategies. Now, I think they are part of a much broader range of ideas that we can have, but I just wanted to put something out there. And one principle is really quite basic, and that's the thought that uh, when states exercise authority, Typically, they're, again, they're not freed from, from obligations by uh, shifting the location of where that uh, exercise of authority occurs. So really trying to have rights follow the border. The basic idea, just to simplify, is to say wherever that authority is exercised, 
some protections or at least protections similar to what you would have at the territorial border should apply. And we all know that the territorial border to begin with, actually, the rights are more limited than had you already uh, crossed the border if you were on the territory per se. So I want at least that set of rights and protections to follow the exercise of authority. And again, if, if, if authority is exercised extraterritorially, so should uh, rights apply extraterritorially. Now, we know it's extremely complicated when we try to translate that into specific constitutional regimes, but the principle, I think, is actually quite straightforward. So what's an example of that, a place where a, a state uh, has pushed its border out and you think rights might be able to be brought to apply? Well, you know, the most extreme example that we have of the shifting border is the case of Australia. Australia has been worried about the arrival of, of what they refer to as unauthorized migrants coming in uh, specifically through uh, by boat. So trying to arrive and reach Australia's uh, shore without uh, receiving uh, permission. Australia has really tried to relocate its border through the words of law, by which I mean that the government has created a distinction between what they call the country's uh, migration zone and Australia, as we would typically uh, know it or, or, or identify it if we looked at the atlas and look at the map. What Australia did is it introduced um, a change of law that's called the Migration Amendment Act. It was introduced actually in 2001. It was later expanded in 2005 to, and then 2013. And the idea is that if you land in certain locations, which through legislation were defined as exceeds territory, territory which for migration regulation purposes is no longer Australia, even if you physically landed on Australian shores, you legally never reached Australia. So we have here the distinction between actually people's physical bodies arriving, but legally they never reached the country. And that has very, very dramatic uh, procedural and substantive um, implications in terms of rights that individuals might have or uh, their ability to otherwise apply for asylum and protection. And of course, when pe once people are on the territory, but legally they are not, uh, they have to be somewhere. So Australia had to uh, create what it calls offshore processing or a regional arrangement. So let me let me ask you about two, two examples from the U.S. story and how you would think about them. One is the interdiction of boat arrivals coming over the Caribbean, the Cubans and Haitians for years, where the U.S. has simply stopped them on the high seas and turned them away. The second is for legal immigration. The U.S. has uh, visa offices all around the world, and people have to apply to visas to come to the U.S., and, and those decisions of State Department officers overseas are, are not reviewable uh, in federal court, and we don't know whether they're being denied on permissible or impermissible grounds. Both of those are examples of your border having shifted outward. Are there ways to get control of those efforts to make those kinds of activities subject to some kind of scrutiny somewhere? Yeah, uh, these are great examples. Thanks for them. Well, first of all, let, let's start uh, with uh, the introduction at sea, which, which you're right, of course, uh, with Haiti and with the coup d'etat. So this was, of course, a, a strategy of, of saying, uh, we'll stop individuals before uh, they reach our gates, before they reach uh, U.S territory and it was quite successful in the sense that indeed individuals uh, were pushed back and to some extent almost uh, brought back to death. I mean, really with extreme consequences. Uh, and we know that there was a legal challenge there. We also know that the U.S. Supreme Court decided that uh, non-refoulement does not apply extraterritorially, and this is a still standing law. We also know that uh, other courts have really resisted this interpretation and offered a different interpretation, uh, to some extent saying that extraterritoriality does not matter at all. Uh, 
which would be uh, the Inter-American uh, Commission, or um, we have the European Court of Justice actually saying something more qualified, saying if the actions fall under the jurisdiction of the convention or the, the powers of a member state, then the convention holds. Yeah, the visa situation is actually, to me, fascinating, and it also builds on uh, just giving credit where, where credit is due, because people have looked at questions of what Ari Zolberg famously called remote control, which actually referred to this visa processing, which is unilateral in the sense that the state defines uh, which categories and criteria it enforces, and that is done prior to arrival. So it's both territorially, physically, and, and temporally occurring prior to the arrival to the border. And of course, in that example, as you said, the concern is that these decisions are not reviewable. These decisions, we don't know, maybe they're made, you know, maybe all of them would hold if they were reviewed, but typically we would want to actually have the ability to have this reviewed by um, some kind of a body other than the body exercising authority. We have that in our constitutional law and administrative law. We have to ensure that states are not acting arbitrarily and capriciously. They might not, but why not have the basic uh, protections that we would typically have with other actions? So I think this is again, these are all such basic principles in the sense that when power is, is, is brought to bear, so should protections and, and, and some restrictions and some uh, third parties in the sense of uh, some other body that's not the body making the determination. If I could say why I think this particular approach is actually attractive, unlike most of the literature, which if you read it, is either um, adhering to current principles or offering that we just should say that states say have no right to exclude, right? And it could be for political theorists, it may be a very interesting argument to explore. But what I'm saying here is, is actually a little bit more modest. I'm saying let's work with states. Let's assume that they do have the legitimate right to control uh, who enters and uh, who remains on their territories. Even within that framework, there are just so many principles that we already have that we can apply. So let's stay at the conceptual level for a moment. Uh, in the book, you you assert that the idea of the shifting border puts pressure on uh, Westphalian notions of territorial sovereignty. You mentioned Westphalian notions earlier, meaning the idea that you have states that are sovereign within uh, their territory. And the shifting border puts pressure on that idea. Uh, and I'm wondering, though, whether one might say that, well, actually, a border shift is actually an exercise uh, of sovereignty in the same ways that joining an international treaty is an exercise of sovereignty. So this, this pushing out of the border is simply another form of sovereignty, not a new conception of sovereignty. What do you think about that? Well, I think it's a fantastic question, and I like it so much. I actually grappled with it when I was writing the book, because to some extent, of course, uh, we can say that the shifting border is a a tremendous manifestation of state authority. And here when I say that, I am actually intervening in another debate, which, you know, it's, there, there are some debates. One is about open versus closed border. The second debate is about whether states, uh, the demise of the state, which again, uh, typically goes with the disappearing uh, border theory. And there was a very strong claim, this is primarily in the 1990s, that states have actually lost their ability to control um, admission and mobility. And I want to suggest that I, I really, that the evidence doesn't hold that particular claim, just doesn't hold if you look at the evidence. So to some extent, I think states are um, reimagining their authority. So I'm not claiming in any way that states have lost control. I think they're trying to regain control, if anything. But it does matter in the sense that the way that I see the pressure on their Westphalian notions of territorial sovereignty operating is as follows precisely by breaking the 
basic component of that Westphalian system, which was the thought that each country has its well-defined territory. Within that territory, it has tremendous authority, but it cannot act uh, outside that uh, territory without getting consent or permission from other countries. So it's, you know, if you want to have a visual image, it's like a Mondrian picture, right? So we know there are the black lines, and then there's the yellow area, and the red area, and the blue area, and the white area, and they're very clearly demarcated. And what states have done is they have kept this in the back of their, this is still the backfall, because it is still the world in which we reside. But by taking their operations potentially very deeply into the interior, or very, very far away to the exterior, operating in an extraterritorial fashion, states are, in that sense, really pushing against that basic framework, the Mondrian kind of black uh, lines, the grid. But they are operating, indeed, uh, through a concept of sovereignty. They do have to get some consent. That is, for example, when the European Union um, is trying now to regulate mobility deep in Africa, where people begin their journeys, they have to get the consent of these relevant countries. They have to get their cooperation. In some cases, we don't really know what kind of exchange goes on in terms of securing that cooperation. So it's not that sovereignty has been erased either in the sense of the destination countries, the countries of origin, or the countries of transit. They all have to cooperate, and these are complicated arrangements uh, to be made. It's a very, very different vision of how authority is exercised, where it's exercised, and also who are your partners. So states are acting in some cases alone, often in concert, again, with other countries that are receiving countries or with countries which um, are countries that people would have passed en route on their way to those countries, or as I said, countries of origin or transit, supranational agencies, Frontex in the EU context, that's the European Border and Coastal uh, Control Agency that does a lot of work now. We also have supranational entities working as the European Court of Human Rights, which I mentioned before, and also migrants are changing their behavior in response to the shifting border. So to a great extent, it's just a much more dynamic and almost a, it's, a, it's like a kaleidoscope kind of movement that we see one part moves and everything else uh, moves as well. So I think the territorial border and sovereignty in that sense is still the backdrop, but states have been so creative and imaginative, and to some extent all other players have been, that I think we really have to acknowledge that something else is going on, that this is a new model. Normally, when we talk about notions of sovereignty shifting, uh, it's seen in terms of somehow sovereignty weakening. They're moving into other kinds of structures or cooperative structures and the like. And here, what you're describing is really a, a kind of super sovereignty, sovereignty that can be exercised almost anywhere in the world, so long as you have the consent of the state in which uh, you're operating. Uh, so it may move away from the strict notion that sovereignty applies on a particular territory. But in some ways, it's described describing a very strong notion of the state. I absolutely agree. I really think that this is what is going on. And partly this is really why I wrote this book, because I think it's it's so invisible. It's much easier for us to know where the border is if there's a port of entry, there's a building, there's a, an a official sort of uniformed official. We know that we have entered another country. There's a whole procedure. We're familiar with it. There's something about that visibility and the familiarity that allows us to understand that we're crossing a border. And also there are certain uh, rules and requirements, right? I don't have to usually show my passport to any officer in the street. I do have to do it when I cross a border. What happens with the shifting border is that, it, in my interpretation, uh, uh, states are indeed uh, claiming powers for themselves, and they really can operate potentially anywhere in the world. 
I agree. I think it's actually, it would be very, very hard to describe this as the demise or, or decline of, of state authority and or of border control management authority. I think it's precisely the reverse. But again, because it's so invisible, it's unseen, and because it's mobile, it's also very, very hard to react to that border. And partly what I'm trying to say, and this is why I wanted to coin this term, the shifting border, just to say, at least we have a language now to speak about it. And then we can see whether some incidents fit or do not fit within this framework. But it's just we're not stuck in that dichotomy of either, you know, more power, less power, static or disappearing. Uh, a while ago in the conversation, you mentioned there were two strategies for dealing with this outward shifting uh, border. And you described one is how human rights law and other constitutional and the like may be able to catch up with these exertions of authority. What's the second? Well, the second one is I'm really running here with the logic of the shifting border. Because, uh, you know, everything we discussed is the idea that borders, the border control function is no longer tied to a, ter a fixed territorial marker. And just that simple idea provides tremendous latitude um, and leverage to states trying to enforce uh, their migration control powers. And because now they can operate potentially anywhere in the world, our concern was also that uh, the kind of typical rights and protections that would follow are just not there based on this uh, kind of severance of the connection between territory and the exercise of authority. The exercise of authority can occur potentially far, far away from the actual border of a given country. So, for example, if I were to travel to Canada, but uh, I am regulated before I embark on a flight, uh, say, from Singapore to Canada, then clearly the, the ability to stretch the border is there. But I might not have the same protections, especially if I'm seeking uh, uh, protection as a, a refugee or asylum seeker. And my idea is that if states have broken the territorial link, mostly in order to restrict rights, why can't we use exactly the same techniques of a shifting border, not to restrict rights, but actually to enhance them, to have them apply potentially anywhere in the world, just as the shifting border enforcement powers can potentially take place anywhere in the world. And I want to give a concrete example, and I'll stay with Canada, because Canada has really been uh, a leader in the sense of, uh, uh, of, of pushing the idea of intercepting individuals prior to their uh, arrival to the country. And my thought is, why can't the same technique of pre-screening be done in a rights-enhancing way? And again, just to turn to the concrete example, and going back to the point I made earlier on about the, the 2015 uh, refugee crisis, mostly the Syrian refugees who were trying to reach Europe, of course, other members of other countries as well. But what Canada did is in 2015, Canada sent its immigration officials to refugee camps in Lebanon, uh, in, in other uh, in Jordan, other uh, countries in the region where Syrian refugees had already arrived physically and offered them the opportunity to claim protection from those refugee camps. And the individuals who decided to put in an application, they were processed, they were screened, their identity was verified, all the kinds of things that you would typically do were done on location still on the ground before people had ever had any uh, connection. They were an ocean away from Canada. And those individuals who were processed and received status already had the security when they boarded a plane that was offered to them by Canada, by the Canadian government, to come to Canada already knowing that they would have a secure status in Canada. So here at the shifting border, it's exactly the same technique. It's moved it's prior to arrival. It's on far, far away from the actual territory. But here it was right enhancing.
you know, the idea of the shifting border in, in my mind is still a line somewhere. It's almost, I'm imagining it almost like a, a line of scri- a line of scrimmage in American football that moves forward or back, depending on where the ball has ended up. But you actually describe something more than that model when you begin to talk about technology in the book. In, in, in ways, it's you can't even imagine a border as a, as a line, but it becomes almost a field um, that can surround people in the world. Talk a bit about that, about people coming to the borders and moving within countries and carrying this border with them uh, through technology. Yeah, well, this is really futuristic. I mean, really here we're just scratching the surface and we're trying to understand what the new reality would be. But I agree with you. I, I think you're also right that when the border is stretching inward and, outward, and outward, we can actually work with that line. It's just it's, it's just much more mobile. But here with technology, it is really something even uh, deeper. And we know that uh, even prior to the current pandemic, um, states were already imagining the idea of having biometric borders. These are borders that do not require us to have passports, might not even require any human contact when we are regulated in terms of mobility across borders. So let's assume that, uh, you know, I'll just give you a concrete example. Uh, Dubai, for example, has in its Tunnel 3, it's one of their, in one of their terminals, um, a smart tunnel, which is really a biometric border. It's it's a border that currently, it's a way of regulating entry and exit, which now is for trusted travelers and you have to consent to go through it. But basically you would go through a tunnel which has 80 built-in cameras, which would capture your iris scan, your facial recognition. If you've already given your fingerprints, you might also have a point where you would have to give your fingerprints. But these are all biometric measures which are connected in some uh, vast database to your uh, passport and your identity. And the idea is that once you have been screened in that way, we don't really need anything else in terms of monitoring you. Now, the question is, does this only occur when you're really crossing an international border or do these biometric um, the data that is stored about you, in theory, could also be pulled up in different points in the journey. And again, I'll just give you another example. This is still a pilot test that the European Union has introduced. This is a project which is called iBorder Control, and it's a very sophisticated um, um, AI system uh, which is designed to pre-screen. So prior to arrival, uh, incoming travelers are required, and this is from the manual of this particular program, they're required to perform a short, automated, non-invasive interview with an avatar and undergo a lie detector. And these units, these iBorder control uh, units, have to verify your identity and also calculate a risk factor for each individual. Now, that risk factor, once it is determined, could potentially appear in any future border crossing, and it may also lead to further checks or even denial of entry. But because it's a small mobile unit, in theory, it could be placed on a train when you're already within Europe, and you could again be verified. You know, even there, you could have the same kind of risk factor come up, and again, you might be blocked. So here, the border again detaches that territorial moment of entry or the fixed border, and it becomes, uh, it, it, it really, our body becomes the measure of control. 
And I wonder whether the COVID crisis has accelerated this move. That is, that there'll be huge demands now for kind of constant monitoring of the health uh, of people coming into the country, both before they get here at the border and, and once they've actually passed uh, through the border uh, and may develop the infectious disease. And we now seem to have techniques of monitoring health uh, from a distance with technology. Does that worry you? That worries me tremendously, and I do think that here uh, COVID and, and the current pandemic um, really provides a pretext, but also to some extent, you know, I feel for governments, if I had been an official now, I, I don't know which choices I would have made, right, because you're worried here about a public health crisis. The way that I think we might want to think about it is to say there might be certain emergency measures which need to be introduced now, but we have to make sure that they're very limited in terms of duration. That is once the crisis um, is resolved, these uh, measures should be uh, rescinded. And also just to make sure that the architecture is such that it can be undone. So you're right, we know about contact Tracing. We know about all of these uh, new um, measures that are being undertaken, but also just really following with the logic of the shifting border. I don't know if you know, but in Hong Kong, for example, or South Korea or a number of other countries, if you were to cross the border now and you entered the country, you would be subject to a 14-day uh, mandatory quarantine and you would actually have a GPS-connected uh, wristband that would be connected to your smartphone app and it would monitor your movement. And this is post-arrival. You're already in the country and you might even be a citizen of the country. You know, what I find interesting in, in that answer, again, is your basic point here that the, for the theorists in the field of migration studies, the, the general trend has been the porousness of the border and borders are going away and there's a, a freedom of movement that ultimately will be recognized. And yet what you're describing really uh, through the shifting border and what you said now about technology is that the, the states are going to stay way ahead of the migrants on this and we're going to actually see increasing uh, ways of uh, controlling, monitoring, removing, keeping people out. And that is the, the great concern. I agree. I think it is. And I'm also wondering what could be uh, the kind of pushbacks that we might imagine. So one thing is just to understand that this is going on. So to some extent, I agree. I do think that our... Uh, our discussions, at least at the theoretical level, really are, have, have now been for at least two decades, really centered around the idea of open versus closed borders. And I think it captures part of the reality, but increasingly a smaller part because countries can be, uh, borders can be open and closed simultaneously for different uh, entrants. And also, once this capacity to control and to regulate is expanded, as it has already been and potentially will continue to grow, then I just agree. I think this idea that uh, states will just lose control, uh, just as I said, just the evidence doesn't doesn't substantiate it. And it would be good for us, I think, to try and, and recognize this new reality, not necessarily uh, adhere to it or, or accept it, but at least understand that this is the new terrain. And if this is the kind of uh, struggle that we need to engage in, then we should do it head on rather than just really remain in, in the discussion, which is fascinating on the theoretical level. But if, it, if the legal reality and the political reality around us is such that it's just no longer valid, I think it would actually be uh, at, least use, at least useful and, and potentially also allow us some uh, power to resist. Uh, uh, so if we could understand it in a more comprehensive way, and actually it begin, begin to treat it as the new reality. If the shifting border is the border that we are engaging with, we should definitely be more creative in our responses and not fall back uh, to the kind of dichotomies 
that we're so familiar with and realize that something new has emerged. Ayala Shahar, your new book is The Shifting Border, Legal Cartographies of Migration and Mobility. It's been a fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to Tempest Tossed. Our producer and engineer is Sahil Ansari, and our music is composed by Eli Alenikov.